Talking Seals, Forbidden Plateaus, and a 1963 paper from the United States government talking about life, the universe, and everything today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to risk alienating half of my audience because this 2018 is the most important election of our lives until the next most important election of our lives. As a YouTuber slash podcaster slash person with an audience, it is my absolute duty, like any celebrity or public figure, to tell you who to vote for. Because even though this is a paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast, and that's why you listen to it, it is important for me to tell other people how to vote, regardless of my expertise in a particular area. Forget all that stuff. Sure, I Google conspiracies now and then. That makes me a political genius, and that makes me able to tell you who to vote for and what to vote for in the upcoming election. And so I'm going to do that now. I am putting Dead Rabbit Radio. We are fully endorsing the candidacy of Governor of Oregon, Hoover the Talking Seal. Let's listen to Hoover right now. How can you beat that? Could you beat that in a debate? Who is Hoover the Talking Seal? It's real. That's a, What you just heard was an actual seal talking. This story is so bizarre. We're going to cover a couple quick stories today. Just because they're, they're these fun little weird stories. Because tomorrow... We got a more complicated story, and I wanted to just get a little bit more research on it before I presented it. I'll give you a hint. It's about RuneScape. But, so, we're going to save that for tomorrow. So, Hoover the Talking Seal. When I, when I read this story, I was like, what? And I'm reading this article, and I'm like, eh. And then they had a vo- voice clip and multiple witnesses for this guy. So what happened was, this started back in 1971. There was a dude named Scotty Dunning... He was like walking around on the beach and he sees a little tiny baby seal just like he wasn't talking. Baby seal didn't know how to talk back then. He was just like and the dude was like, oh, dude, I got this baby seal here. Let's find the mom. So he gets like a friend of his and they're like looking around and they're like, hey, where's I don't know if they were like, mom, here's your baby seal. But they were looking for this mom and they found her and she was dead. So at that point he was like, like, what are you going to do? I know what I would do. I would take the baby seal home because that's what I would do. Scotty Dunning's, uh, actually his brother-in-law, George Swallow. What a terrible name. George Swallow eventually says, I'll take this little seal pup home. And he realizes that it's not going to lie. It's a baby seal. He realizes the only thing it's going to eat is if he gets fish. I wouldn't do this. He gets fish and he like mushes it up and like feeds it to him as a mush. I might get fish fillets and do that. Fish are disgusting. But anyway, so... I don't like fish at all, so I wouldn't want to sit around and mush one up. But actual, like, fish. And I guess if you live on the beach, you're used to the smell and the guts and all that stuff. But anyways, he mushed up fish, and he would feed it to this little pup, and he would hoover it up. So that's why they named him Hoover. So this little seal pup grew up, and they just basically treated it as a domestic pet. And they had, like, a little pond out in the back, and he'd, like, splash around in that. And as it got older, he would, like, you know, it's like a dog. He's talking to the, get off of the chair, you know, I guess he probably wasn't abusive towards it, but he'd be like, come here, little Hoover, come here. And he'd like pet him and stuff like that. But over the years, 
the seal pup began to imitate his voice. And he even had like this Scottish brogue. I guess I should have said this took place in Scotland, but he had this like, well, did it take place in Scotland? Let me double check. Oh, wait, no, it didn't take place in Scotland. It took place in Maine. So anyways, but he, he got like this accent too when he was talking because George Swallow was constantly saying like, get over here. I don't know why I'm making him out to be such an asshole. George Swallow would be like, come here. And it started to imitate his voice. Now, eventually, Hoover got bigger and bigger. And George is like, oh, I guess I got need to get more fish. He actually had to, like, start buying fish in bulk. And then, George, then not George, then Hoover got so big that they're like, we just can't afford to feed you all this fish. So, cue sad music. So, George Swallows takes Hoover to a aquarium. And he's like, hey, do you want to have this seal? You know, I raised them. And he's this giant dude at this point. Again, not George Swallows. Hoover is giant. And the aquarium goes, sure. And then George Swallow says, oh, by the way, he can talk, which you think would be the first thing you'd say. Hi, I want to donate this talking seal to your aquarium. But he goes, and the people at the aquarium were like, yeah, you know, whatever. So for five years, I almost said George was swimming. <laughs> for five years, Hoover's swimming around in the aquarium. And then he started talking again. Okay, so anyway, so then he starts talking again. And again, not from Scotland, but he had like this accent. And he's swimming around in the aquarium and he's talking. And the aquarium people, what are they called? Like aquatic specialists? Um, and maybe they're just called SAS staff. I don't know. But anyways, so they realized that he, he was like swimming around and he would say, hello there and come over here in a thick New England accent, not Scottish. So he's swimming around. He actually was on Good Morning America, and they, you know, wrote articles about him because people would come out and they'd hear him be like, hello there, hello there, come over here, come over here. And that's where we get this audio clip. Now, I can't necessarily say that the SEAL knew what he was saying or what it meant. The fact that he could actually, like, you can tell he's saying something in English. Fascinating. You know... <laughs> You have to wonder, like, you know, people have taught monkeys sign language and stuff like that, and elephants can paint, but you wonder how many other species out there could, could do more, but we just don't interact with them on a certain level. Like, a this seal is talking after years of being raised by this guy, but they can teach, and you know, the thing about monkeys learning sign language, generally, here's a little bit of a spoiler for you, they don't actually speak sign language. They person with sign language teaches them these hand motions and then the monkey will throw up a hundred different things as they're moving around and the researcher will turn to the camera and go he just said he loved me because in that hundred hand motions he did something like yes there are the clips where they'll show him being like i love you in in sign language speech that stuff's heavily edited the fact monkeys and this people are probably going to bombard me with links proving me wrong and I'm sure that it's not always the case, but generally when monkeys are taught sign language, it is confirmation bias. Just like the sentient water thing, just like you tell water it's beautiful and then you freeze it and then the ice crystals are beautiful. You disregard all the all the parts of the experiment where they come out ugly. You just get rid of them. So anyways, this seal can definitely talk. It's just amazing that you can have cross-species talking. Here's a question. Could... A so if a seal can talk like a human, are there other animals that can mimic other animals? I guess like parakeets can like 
bark like a dog. But can a monkey sound like a chipmunk? Can a snake sound like a gopher? Actually, you know, that would be a great survival skill for a snake. Sound like a gopher in heat. And you eat gophers. Actually, how do we even know that doesn't happen? We don't know. There could be a snake. Okay, I'm getting off topic. But but yeah, I think, you know, I think that's awesome. This guy raised this little seal. If people, di- if researchers tried to replicate this experiment, maybe they could communicate with seals. And they could be like, the water's cold. I don't know. Maybe the water's never cold. I guess, you know, maybe a seal could be like, eat more fish and omega-3s are good for you. Fatty acid. You know, you don't know. Maybe they could tell us all the wonders of the sea. Why don't we... Okay, at a certain point, I have to step back and realize I've gone to nonsense, Phil. But I will finish that thought. What if we trained seals to explore underwater? And they could come up and they'd be like, treasure, treasure. But again, maybe you just teach them the word treasure and that's they say that over and over again and you never find any treasure. The next story we're going to talk about, that was a bit of a, a weird rant. We'll see how much of that survives the editing process. Oh, I should also say that he's dead now. I should also say that, unfortunately, Hoover the Seal died in 1985. So he will not be running for governor. But if he was, I'm I'm still going to endorse him anyways. I'm going to endorse Hoover the Talking Seal for any and all political offices. Because listen to this. Voice of an angel. That is the next Abe Lincoln. That or the oratory skills are bar none. So the next story we're going to look at. This one again was an interesting, interesting story for me on two levels. It's called the Forbidden Plateau, and it is a plateau in British Columbia. And so I was reading about it, and this is the legend around this plateau. There was a tribe called the Comarks. And they were getting raided by other tribes along the coast. And what they would do is they would take their women and children and they would hide them up on the plateau. And then they would fight off or evade the raiders. And then when the battle or the stealth action was done, they would go up to the plateau and bring their wife and children down. But once there was a raid from a rival tribe and they put put them up there and when they went back up there, everyone was gone. Women, the kids were completely gone. They started look trying to like figure out like did we get flanked? Did did somebody come and kill them? What happened? And they found like the snow was red. They it was red lichen covering the snow and the rocks and stuff like that. And the tribe members were like, "This place is cursed. Like our women and children have been taken by some evil spirit, and they're gone forever." So the Forbidden Plateau has been explored by paranormal investigators it's been it's kind of like this local legend it's like a roanoke type thing where people just disappeared i came across and that wasn't the only disappearance there's also like weird bigfoot sightings and stuff like that up there as well so it's just kind of known as this area i came across this honestly adorable website it's on live journal from user caffeine kitty like caffeine like the drink And I'm assuming it's a girl. She really like goes into detail. Like she's actually like a huge supernatural fan. And she's like, I'm going to do this investigation. And I'm going to go up here and I'm going to take pictures. And it's actually really adorable. And I think that's how a lot of people get started into this type of stuff. You know, I obviously watched a lot of supernatural. 
I haven't watched really past season seven, but you know, a lot of Buffy and Angel and X-Files and Kolchak, the Night Stalker and all that stuff. And I I think media is a good way to get it. It's kind of a foothold, Twin Peaks. It's kind of like a foothold into this world because it's just like these super dynamic stories. So it's adorable that, you know, she's like, I'm going on an investigation. This is what the Winchesters would do. So I think that's amazing. And she goes, she does go up there and she's talking about the drive and she's taking pictures and all that stuff. And Find some creepy cabins and things like that. Here's the thing. And this is why this story... The first part of the story, when I read that, I was like, that's creepy. Like, I always like legends of, like, we've talked about portals and people disappearing. Like and hate, because I'm scared of them. But here's the thing. It's all made up. It's completely made up. Now, you can go, well, Jason, you know, there could be a portal up there. No, I'm telling you, it's made up. So what happened was in 1967, Clinton S. Wood talked about the Forbidden Plateau. So in 1925, he was working for the city of Courtenay in the area. So in 1925, he had to go up to the plateau to do some sort of zoning thing for um, the water source for expanding the city. So he was looking for a water source. This is what he says in this book in 1967, direct quote. So entranced was I with the great beauty of the subalpine country that I made up my mind that the general public should be made aware of its great potential as a drawing card for the district and as a great recreational district for all, especially if it could be made a bit more accessible. I was secretary of the Board of Trade and had the idea that a bit of mystery added to the obvious attractions would help publicize it. I wrote a small article to the comics Argus, and the idea was seized upon by Ben Hughes, the editor, who wrote an article to the Vancouver Daily Province using the word plateau. To this was added the word forbidden by Cecil Scott, and thus originated the name Forbidden Plateau. And you're like, okay, well that's how they came up with the name, doesn't prove... Here's another quote. This was Trevor Davis. He was the founding member of the Comox District Mountaineering Club. And he said in 1983 in a book... Ben Hughes was the first publisher of the Comics Argus, which is the local newspaper, a wonderful man at making up stories. So he invented the story of the Indian War, when the Indians took all their wives up there and there were some big hairy creatures of some sort, and the women disappeared, and the Indians have refused to go there ever since. That is how the name Forbidden Plateau and the legend started. But there is absolutely no truth in these stories as far as the local Indians are concerned, but they became legends and Ben printed articles in the Comics Argus and away they went. And now they are history. Obviously, the Indians didn't go in there because all their food was on the beach. And they weren't stupid like we are. They didn't go mountain climbing for no reason. I don't think this necessarily proves that everything's a hoax. But it goes to show this stuff was printed back at the turn of the century, like in the 20s, in the 1920s. And people just made it up. They just made it up. They're like, oh, it's a beautiful place. How do we get people up there? I tell them it's haunted. I would have never known about the Forbidden Plateau. It never would have ended up on this podcast. That young girl never would have went up there. Paranormal sites never would have talked about it. It would have just been another pretty place that families go picnicking every once in a while. But because of these stories, with with good, you know, the people had good intentions. They weren't, oh, and then I bought up a bunch of land and I built a haunted house up there. They're just like, this is such a beautiful place. How do we get people up here? Tell them Bigfoot's here. It makes you, again, question how many other times this happens. Not necessarily always with good purposes. Somebody may have a house and they figure they can, you know, rent it out if they say it's haunted and stuff like that. But I think I'm I'm happy that I was able to find this 
basically rebuttal to that original legend because at first I was looking at that original legend looking for more information and I discovered this story and I think it makes it even more fascinating to know that it was a good-hearted lie a lie nonetheless and you could be angry with them for doing that but it was a good-hearted lie to get people to explore something they may never have otherwise heard of and when you're reading other stories about mystical places or haunted houses or forbidden plateaus I'd like you to keep this in mind, too. But yeah, fascinating. And these two people came forward and said, yeah, I totally made it up. So, you know, that young girl who went up there, she didn't get tricked. She didn't get fooled. She spent a really fun day doing what her heroes do. Solving a mystery. Exploring something she never would have gone to otherwise. So again, it's a lie, but I think there was good intentions behind it. And those good intentions are still playing out today. The last story we're going to talk about is, again, kind of falls into that weird, fun type of story. What happened was, back in 1963, Maxwell Hunter II, which basically means junior. Nobody calls you the second. But anyways, Maxwell Hunter, he worked for the National Aeronautics and Space Council. He writes a letter to Robert Packard, who is in the Office of the International Scientific Affairs. And it is a paper on aliens. And it's fascinating because it is written at the level of technological exploration as of 1963. So he wrote it in the year 1963. We hadn't been to the moon yet. We were just, we hadn't discovered any other planets around other suns. And he addresses these things. He goes, you know, we don't know how our solar system was created. We still are not entirely for sure how our solar system was created. So he talks about an original theory that our solar system was created when two suns passed really close next to each other. And it, I guess, was pulling plasma off of one sun and it created these planets. And he goes, if that was the case, then solar systems must be incredibly rare because how could that happen, you know, multiple times? Then in the next paragraph, he goes, but we know that's not true anymore. Our new theory is that solar system was created as some sort of disk And I bet you they're everywhere. And this was before we knew that. This was, again, before we knew there were planets orbiting almost every star. He does mention that. He goes, you know, new theories are that there are planets orbiting all sorts of stars. So technically, there's an an uncalculable amount of planets out there. So it's interesting seeing how he's sussing it out. And he goes, "If if there's an unlimited amount of planets, then the the chance of life evolving on these other planets is much higher than if it's like a one-off thing of two suns passing each other. He then goes on to talk about how he talks about the moons of Mars. He gets he's, It's funny because, again, 1963, he spends a good amount of deal with aliens on Mars. He's like, you know, they have the canales on Mars. And the line, and this is two high-level government officials talking, you know, he's writing this to another high-level government official. He says, the canales are the straight lines. He goes, but you'll see where they make an intersection. There's like a circle. And he goes, every canale goes from one point, one like structure or mountain to another structure or mountain. I've never seen one just dead end in the middle of nowhere. So at this point, they were still thinking that the canals on Mars could be made by intelligent life. He goes on to say that every lunar probe we've sent up has failed. So it is possible that there are aliens on the moon shooting them down or deactivating them in some way. Again, this is government officials in 1963 talking about this, and he goes into this thing about there's basically three types of aliens that we have to think about, or really there's only three types of aliens in general. 
He goes, there's ones that are on Mars. And he does say, he goes, modern science is saying that there is most likely no other life in our solar system. So he does address that. He's not a total idiot, but he's still just postulating these things. He goes, well, you know, they say that there's no life in our solar system, and they're probably right, but it's something that we should address as a government. He goes, there's a chance that there is life on Mars, and they're using chemical rockets to travel from Mars to the moon. He goes, we're picking up heat signatures on the moon. We've found um, thermal vents on the moon now on the dark side that we've registered with our heat instruments or whatever. And he goes, it's possible that what is happening is why we're picking up thermal vents on the dark side of the moon along the edge is because there is a mining operation from Mars that is expanding across the moon. And so originally they were fully in the dark side of the moon, but as the mining operation has evolved, they've had to move closer and closer to the rim. He said the Martians, if this is the case, are most likely using chemical rockets. And he goes into this big thing about how escaping Mars's gravity is much less than escaping Earth's gravity. And, if, and he says if you're flying from Mars to the moon, there's really not much propulsion needed as opposed from the Earth to the moon or from Mars to Earth. He goes, aliens could come down here from Mars, but the amount of force they would need to then leave our planet wouldn't be worth it. So he goes, if there are, again, it's so fascinating. He goes, if there are aliens on Mars and they have chemical rockets, they must be, and I'm putting words in his mouth, shit in their pants right now. And he's like, if they're just using chemical rockets and we're at atomic age, then they have a serious problem. He goes, the next type of aliens that we could possibly see are aliens that are moving two-thirds the speed of light. He goes, you know, Einstein says that you can't move faster than the speed of light, however. And then it's fascinating. He goes, I know I keep using that word, but he says um, half to three-quarters the speed of light. You had a ship flying at that level, and the galaxy is 100,000 light years across. If it was even just going average half the speed of light, and on average, they stopped every 10 light years for a 20-year stay at a solar system to deposit colonists, refuel, build extra ships. It would only take 200,000 years, starting at the center of the galaxy, to spread throughout the whole system. Since the earliest known remains of man have been dated at approximately 1,700,000 years, a sustained drive for merely 200,000 years may not be unreasonable. Of course, and then this is his interesting quote here, of course, if we were to run across representatives of this kind of interstellar race, they would not be nearly as tame as the previously hypothesized chemical Martians, and our policy would need to be revised accordingly. Fortunately, travel time restrictions would inhibit their ability to bring all their forces to bear in case we develop differences of viewpoint. So what he's saying is that, yes, let's say that it does take them 200,000 years to get to every planet, and let's say that they get here. Let's say the journey for them to get from their home world to us along setting up colonies along the way takes 50,000 years because they're moving at half the speed of light. If we went to war, because again, these are government officials. This is 1963. This is what they're thinking of. If we went to war, even their nearest colony may be 10,000 years away. So you would have that distance to buffer it. So you would be able to wage war beat them back, and then 10,000 years to prepare for the next wave. They wouldn't have those instantaneous reinforcements. But the last form of alien life that he talks about is Einstein's theory may be wrong, and people may be able to travel beyond the speed of light. And he goes, if that's the point, 
There's an interesting quote. If we were to meet such a race, our policy had better be to negotiate fast, because the implications of their far better understanding and control of the fundamental forces of nature would be obvious. If all the scientific speculation were to turn out wrong, and we were to stumble across an alien race, we would want to know as quickly as possible which of the three types I have indicated it was, as our diplomatic policy would damned well be influenced by the results. So if it's chemical Martians, we're the top dog. If it, and when chemical Martians means they're using chemical fuel for their rockets. If it's a species that takes tens of hundreds of thousands of years to reach us, we'll fight them and we'll beat them. And by the time they come back, we'll be on their level. But if ships just appear in our solar system tomorrow, come out of warp, drop out of light speed, whatever you want to say, now we got serious problems. Because not only can their ships get here incredibly fast, so we're going to have constant, they're going to have constant reinforcements, they're going to have resupplies, things like that. They are dealing with technology that we didn't even know existed outside of fiction. And this would be things that the government would have to plan for. Governments have, you know, the U.S. government has run tests on like what would happen if zombies attacked, what would happen if aliens attacked. They have to run these games because they have to be prepared. You have to be prepared for anything. I've always wondered, has the U.S. military ever won a war game on a Godzilla kaiju type scenario where they generals get around and they go, today we're running a scenario. There is a 50-foot-tall creature appearing off of the coast of California. What do we do to minimize casualties? And they have to sit there and they got to figure everything out. Okay, well, we'll have this strike force moving here. Okay, this creature has this type of abilities, so it can fly and it can breathe fire, and its skin is resistant to almost all normal order and ordinance. How do we take care of this? And they just run the game. Just to be prepared. Part of it would be like they got all this awesome hardware and simulation software. They're like, dude, what if America had to fight like 500 Spartans? Like you would be running simulations. America would win against 500 Spartans. But, you know, you would be running simulations just because it's Saturday night and you're drunk. But I think you would also be running simulations to say, what would happen if tomorrow a kid in Omaha found an amulet that turned him into Superman? Run the simulation. Why not? You have to be prepared for this stuff. What would happen if Hoover the Talking Seal became President of the United States and we had to form a junta against him? And all they could say was, hello there, come over here. So the government does talk about this stuff and they plan for it. And this guy wrote this paper and it survives to this day and you can read it online. And yeah, just just crazy. Who knows what other simulations that they've run? What other papers like this are out there saying this is what we have to be prepared for if we meet an interdimensional demonic race, or if we meet, if, if hell opened up tomorrow off the coast of Aruba, how would we battle these creatures? I, I don't know. Maybe that's more offset, because this guy's obviously using scientific information to talk about these aliens. But as the farther you go down the line... It's all, it was also interesting because he mentioned God and religion a couple times in this too. And again, it's 1963 America. You would be fine putting that stuff. He's like, you know, God may have created a life. So yeah, it was just, it, it's, it's kind of this little time capsule of how people looked at things back then. And it was a time capsule that was created before all of our modern advancements with 
high-powered telescopes, landing on the moon for one, and you know, going to asteroids and dropping rovers and stuff like that. It's a neat little, neat little piece of history. Well, that was a fun episode. There was no stories that were completely depressing that involved kids killing themselves or serial killers or mind control or super soldiers or anything like that. That's not what it's going to be like tomorrow. This was kind of a one-off episode, but I just wanted to tell some fun stories tonight. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. We're coming up to October, so that's when we get into the really spooky stuff. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. I actually respond quicker to my email than anything else. If you want to get a hold of me like quickly, email. Second fastest is YouTube. Generally, I'm uploading stuff and that's when I respond on YouTube. But if you want to get a hold of me quickly, email is the best way to do it. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.